We're going through something absolutely historic. Technologies across the board are growing exponentially. It's a disruption that's going to completely redefine the way businesses compete. In the next decade, we're going to lose 40% of today's Fortune 500 companies. The exponential growth of computing is continuing. AI is nowhere near its full potential. Whether you like it or not, that the future cannot be stopped by anyone. Okay, so welcome to the Future Tech and Foresight podcast. I think it's been far too long since I've released an episode, and I'm happy to finally do so after this relatively large rebranding effort is now complete. So if you're curious, in the new introduction episode at the very beginning of the podcast, I've explained the reasons behind the rebranding and detailed the new direction and topics the podcast will now cover. It's kind of the primary topic has shifted away from job automation. But part of the reason is actually connected to today's episode on brain-computer interface technology. So I first came across neurotech as the larger category term many years ago in a relatively short article that described and showed images of a paralyzed patient that was able to control a robotic arm with simply her thoughts in order to pick up a cup of water and move it towards her lips so that she could take a drink. But it wasn't until the hype and I guess the plethora of articles out there explaining Elon Musk's Neuralink venture that I decided to look further into this fascinating technology and what its potentials may hold for the future. So once I understood the tech at a more or less general level, not only did my amazement of what our kind of shared future might shape into grow, but the realization that focusing on a narrow subject like automation was in part actually limiting. If there is validity to the exponential growth of technological development argument, which I think there is, um, being highly focused in just one area may actually blind oneself to opportunities elsewhere that solve problems faster and perhaps even more efficiently than what is currently focused on. And this is part of the desire of the podcast, to expose us all to a more diverse set of technologies and how they might impact future organizations and individuals so we can all make better choices moving forward in our more and more complex world. So to summarize and reiterate, diving into brain-computer interface was one of the light bulb moments for this understanding, and I'm happy to hopefully expose this technology's awesome potential for the first time to some of you. So I'm fortunate enough to be joined by David Moses. He is a postdoc researcher out of the University of California, who has worked on enabling paralyzed patients to communicate using surgically implanted brain-computer interface technology. So David and I discussed the work he is doing, how the technology works at a general level, some of the challenges to the technology, and what more or less the next 10 years may hold for the future of brain-computer interface technology in general. So even though David has been extremely busy, he was able to share some essential insights for this podcast. But due to our limited discussion time, I think it's a little bit relevant to give a short overview of the technology before we dive directly into the content with David. So if this is the first time you've even heard about this technology, or you've only vaguely heard about the high-profile 2016 launch of Elon Musk's Neuralink company, brain-computer interfaces are the most common devices within the neurotechnology category. And neurotechnology is simply any method or electronic device which interfaces with the nervous system to monitor or even influence neural activity. 
So I have a future guest lined up to come on and discuss more of the kind of wide range of technologies and applications that are already available. But generally speaking, the range of technologies exist from MRI scanners to implantable brain devices. So there's quite a wide range there. But David and I discuss in more depth some of the more fascinating current and future applications of brain-computer interface. But in large part, the applications of neurotechnology have been on the treatment of various mental health issues like depression and insomnia, but also in aiding the rehabilitation of such health issues like strokes, paralysis, Parkinson's, and even recovering hearing. So as you'll hear in the interview, the practices used are usually broken down into invasive versus non-invasive, where invasive requires surgery to typically implant electrodes directly into a part of the brain, and non-invasive, which we won't really touch on in this episode today, uses various devices to record the brain activity simply by more or less placing a hat or helmet of some sort directly onto the head. So where the industry has become really interesting, though, is at the intersection between these devices and, of course, the introduction of artificial intelligence. So with the advancement of neurotechnology devices like MRI scanners, uh, we have been enabled to record larger and more detailed data sets about what is actually going on in the brain by more accurately detailing brainwave activity. But with the introduction of AI and, of course, the powerful ability to train AI on data sets and learn over time, we have essentially enabled a more accurate understanding of what that data can actually represent. This has opened up the possibility to decode brain activity and understand aspects of both animal and human experience like speech, thought, and even image generation. Now, as you can imagine, this does bring up a large number of ethical issues that will, I think, only really grow as the technological capabilities increase. Though interesting and important, the topic is so vast that I think it's best to dedicate an entire future episode on the ethical implications, but focus on the technology and what is possible in this first discussion. And moving forward to this first discussion, one of the things that has been enabled with specifically trained AI programs is the ability to detect words being spoken, and put that in air quotes, even if no sounds have been uttered. And this leads us to the conversation today and the research of David Moses and the team he is working with. So David, as I mentioned before, is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of California, San Francisco, as part of the Edward Chang Lab. He has numerous publications that deal with how machine learning is able to decode speech from brain activity and has been overseeing a lot of the research connected to one of the more high-profile studies that deal with an implanted brain-computer interface device in a living human patient. So I found David's insights into this topic to be fascinating and gained, I really think, a deeper appreciation for what is possible and both excited and perhaps a bit worried when he laid out what the future may hold for this industry. I hope you find the conversation as useful as I did to really help frame what is happening in our future just a little bit more. Great. Well, uh, thank you, David, for coming on to the podcast. It's a pleasure to uh, finally uh, reunite on an online forum. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's good Great. to be here. 
so the way that I like to start all interviews with all guests is to kind of get a little bit more of a personal perspective from you. So, you know, we will be talking about uh, how to communicate without words per se, uh, brain computer interface and kind of the interesting technology that you're working on. But maybe just to start off the bat, like what initially got you interested on a personal level in the in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. I think really it started when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in undergraduate. And Mm -hmm. I was really interested in computer science at the time. Um, I guess even a step before that in high school, I was actually on the computer science team and it was fun. I liked uh, being able to tackle these problems. And, you know, it it was just a, it really stimulated my interest in the field. And then when I got to undergrad, I was met with this decision of like, okay, I interested in computer science and, and software, but um, what, what kind of applications am I interested in? And that's when I started on this route of bioengineering. And that's what I got my uh, bachelor's in and eventually my PhD in as well. In terms of the focus towards neuroscience, I think that was also a natural progression for me where I found myself just being more or less really interested in the brain as kind of like the final frontier and mm. this really amazing computational organ um, that gives rise to basically everything we experience. And it's just this huge enigma and it felt very exciting and uh, felt like a really good meeting point of software engineering and processing mm-hmm. and all the artificial intelligence, machine learning stuff now, and then also neuroscience and biology. And now my passion these days is on how to apply that and how can we bring those two things into the clinical realm, into a practical application realm. And that's through the use of, of course, brain computer interfaces and my particular interest is, you know, a therapeutic um, implementation of brain computer interfaces to help people who have lost some an important function to regain some semblance of that function or restore it as much as we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's fascinating, and I also think that this is kind of uh, maybe one of the things that maybe some listeners would be already familiar with, right? Some of the kind of therapeutic or the the health benefits from using this type of technology uh, for some of the people, like uh, I'm sure you'll get into, like people that can't speak anymore or that are you know paralyzed or you know as kind of has been uh, popularized in the last couple of years, like with Neuralink and the type of work that Elon Musk wants to do with uh, with that company. But uh, but I'm also assuming that uh, that your your initial interest came before Neuralink and kind of the more popularization of, of this type of um, technology and, and science. But um, maybe we can just dive into what exactly it is that you're doing and how your work is kind of influencing the ability for people to speak that don't that have lost the capability and maybe other things that uh, that maybe I'm not also aware of. Yeah, no, I'm happy to get into that. Basically, this I think we had this really big milestone in 2021 where we kind of showed that it was possible for someone who is unable to speak due to paralysis mm-hmm. is able to try to speak. And then through a brain computer interface, we can decode you know, what they were trying to say. And this was done in a very limited capacity. We have had what we consider an expansion of that that came out late last year, um, another publication that shows that we can expand from the limited vocabulary we had at the start into something a little more. But I think in, in general, the goal is the goal was to leverage our understanding of speech motor neuroscience. So in the lab, we have a long experience of, or a lot of experience in understanding how the neural signals in particular part of your brain, which is called the speech motor cortex. Mm-hmm. And this is the part of the brain that allows you to control your vocal tract and speak. And we've been studying 
how these signals you know, give rise to speech. How do they give rise to the various vowels and consonants? And we did a lot of this with the ultimate you know, dream goal of, okay, if you understand this, maybe this can help people speak again who have lost ability to speak. Hmm. And so that's when we started the clinical trial to see if we can apply the knowledge that we learned to this different, you know, to an actual patient population towards a practical application. And the way that this works, just to give a brief overview, is we have basically a sheet of electrical sensors, so electrodes, circular electrodes that sit on the surface of the brain. So you can imagine like EEG, but this actually is invasive. So the participants get brain surgery and this sheet of sensors is laid over the surface of their speech motor cortex, over this part of the brain that would normally control the vocal tract. And we can acquire these signals as the participant tries to say certain targets. And then we have this, you know, we build up this wealth of data from across all these sensors and we can have machine learning models to tease apart the differences, very subtle differences in these complex patterns, um, both in space, you know, across the surface of the brain and also in time as the neural signals evolve through time. And learning these patterns, we can then apply this to say, okay, now we have this model. Can we actually predict on a new, a new time series, a new encounter of neural signals that the device picks up? And can we turn that into what the person was trying to say? Can we decode that information? And so that in general is, I, th- I would say the goal of this technology, it's to decode intent to speak, you know, an attempt to speak. It's not mind reading. It can't pick up people's thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really like when someone tries to speak, there's a disconnect between the brain and the vocal tract. And all we're trying to do with this interface is to overcome the bypass that disconnect and restore that connection through an artificial, you know, digitized mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and maybe um, for the listeners, it would be useful uh, when we're talking about the size, right? So you were mentioning a sheet. I, I assume that this is a, a very small sheet. <laughs> yes, yes, that's really good to... Uh, to emphasize. So this is only, I think the exact dimensions are something around um, 30 by like 70 millimeters, roughly. So, um, and this varies a little bit depending on what type of array you're using. But in our case, it's roughly this, I can't remember the exact numbers, but Mm -hmm. it's in the, it's in the paper. But this is, this is enough to, you know, to cover a really important area for Mm -hmm. speech processing. And also, with the amount of channels that we have to give us really high fidelity spatial resolution that we can tease apart these patterns in, in different spatial activations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and going back to the uh, machine learning aspect that you were mentioning, so I, I can only assume that in the kind of training phase, uh, there were some errors that were made, right? Uh, there were maybe some words that were, that were thought that weren't necessarily decoded properly. Um, and is this, is this something that's getting better, uh, as time goes on, or is it already so good that say, I think Apple or I don't know, elephant and, the the AI program would be able to specifically and maybe perfectly write down or, or, uh, how should I say, understand that those are the two words that I'm thinking of. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely still room for improvement. Um, mm-hmm. and just to, to emphasize it's. You would have right now with the existing technology, at least you would have to attempt to say these words. You couldn't just think them. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a separate study that had a small uh, word set that they had um, 
participants try to just think words and they were trying to decode that. So that's interesting. Um, you know, encourage people to read it. That it came out of Caltech in the Anderson lab, but um, for our approach and to enable the type of performance that we see in terms of how accurate can we decode speech, how fast can the system go and vocabulary size, you know, these are kind of our considerations or at least mm -hmm. some of them. Mm -hmm. um, the person has to try to speak, you know, it's, it's really difficult to decode just imagined mm, thoughts. Interesting. So, so in that, in that regard though, to answer your original question, it's, there is still a lot of room for improvement. And I think that there's a lot of ways that things that this improvement can kind of take shape. So hardware is going to be an important one. You know, if we're talking about future, uh, the future of the field, mm -hmm. I think it's very telling that if you look at, for example, all the companies that are out there making brain computer interfaces, um, a lot of them have different hardware. Usually that's a very big disambiguation between the companies. Um, sometimes there's similarities in what they want to achieve, but the hardware that they use is, is almost like the bread and butter in some ways. So this isn't to say that the machine learning algorithms aren't important, but the hardware is really, um, I think, yeah, as I said, it's, it's what separates a lot of yeah. companies from each yeah. other. You can just immediately tell who's trying what by, um, mm -hmm. the hardware that they're, that they're trying to develop. And so that's one way that things can improve. And I think also, of course, the algorithms themselves, there's still so much we don't understand about the brain and about, you know, the signals that underlie the behavior of interest that underlie these attempts to speak. And so I think those two, to me, are really big roads to a future where you can get something that's extremely reliable, extremely accurate, and ultimately really usable and, and helpful for people who kind of need this technology. Yeah. But maybe it's also um, useful to emphasize that it's already successful, right? So I, I read this this article that I think was the the first time that I came across your work. That um, uh, one of the patients, uh, I think there's a, a code word to to uh, make the person anonymous, but uh, this person was actually able to, uh, in, in your words. Uh, attempt to speak certain words and the the words were picked up and this person was able to communicate though at a slower rate than say you or I that are doing right now but they were still able to as a fully paralyzed person able to communicate so even though there are all these advancements today right now this kind of success if you will can actually be realized yeah and I think that's a really good point and I think that working with some of the not just the participants on the trial but some of the other individuals who have these kinds of disabilities and understanding what they currently use to communicate mm -hmm. um, and those limitations. I think to me, it's, uh, it, it demonstrates a very, a very real need and a kind of a fundamental one, you know, the ability to communicate yeah. and interact with your surroundings. It's, it's, it's fundamental to you know, who we are to some degree. And I think what we have already shown, at least in our, in our, um, you're probably referring to Bravo One, yeah. as we yeah. refer to him, also known as Poncho. There's a really great New York Times story written about him. Um, he's an amazing person. Hmm. And just seeing him use the system, and, and I think it's very clear to me, at least, that there is an immediate practical benefit that, that could be, you know, granted hmm. to to people with these kinds of disabilities. Um, I think, of course, people with the most severe disabilities 
who have almost no means of communication. This technology is particularly the most promising for them. Mm-hmm. But I think there's still, you know, there's so much research that still needs to be done, um, especially given how some of these things can vary from person to person, I think, as other studies have shown. Um, but so far, we are very optimistic, yeah, that this will be uh, continue to improve and just continue to, I, I think it's there. I think yeah. we just need to focus on more practical aspects. That's really important to us. Um, and I think it should be important to others in the field is, okay, some of the proof of concept is there, but how do you actually make something that is tailored to the needs of this patient population mm-hmm. that's reliable? Very interesting. Um, I, I wanted to also go back. So you were mentioning that the hardware is kind of the one major challenge, if you will, uh, in order to make this uh, much more successful in the future. Uh, you also mentioned that the technology that you're using is uh, invasive, I think is the, is the correct term in, mm-hmm. in your discipline, right? Um, so I've also found that there are other companies, uh, they do different things, but it's non-invasive, right? It's a, it's a wearable that you're, you're able to mm-hmm. put on your head. And those would be able to just pick up um, brain signals as opposed to the actual thoughts that are directly in your brain, uh, if, if I understand it correctly. But my question to you is, do you see, say, in the next, I don't know, let's pick a number, 10 to 20 years, that the type of work that you're doing uh, would no longer require kind of invasive surgery? Uh, if the if the hardware gets good mm-hmm. enough, would it just be able to you know, have a wearable and the kind of attempt to speak would be able to pick up due to the sophistication of the um, of the receptors? Yeah, so I think there would need to be a fundamental breakthrough. Okay. Um, that's that's kind of my opinion. I think that what people have been able to show with non-invasive methodologies mm-hmm. is is really impressive. And there might be further improvements that can be made incrementally to get to something that I think you, could, you might be able to do something basic like a, a small word vocabulary or something like that. But to really get to the level of fidelity mm. and the naturalness of what we are hoping to achieve and we think we can achieve, um, I don't see any way with existing non-invasive technology to get there. Really interesting. Um, and just to, just to clarify, one of the main reasons for this, it's the skull acts as, if you will, like a high-pass filter. Right. And so what that means is that some of the really important and information-rich neural activations like brain activity that goes on in the brain it some of that gets attenuated it gets reduced drastically when you're trying to record it from outside of the skull you can think of it as like trying to take a picture through like a sheet like a blanket or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you can get some sense of what's going on but some of the a lot of the detail is lost and so that just remains to be a major challenge for non-invasive approaches Mm -hmm. And for something so important as speech, you really want to have that fidelity as high as possible so that you're not making those kinds of mistakes, you know, frustrating your patient and and ultimately uh, not enabling the person to, to speak and communicate. Very interesting. Um, I also see, I know that you're very busy and that we have uh, we have a short amount of time here. So maybe we can spend the last uh, five or, or so minutes of the, um, of the discussion to really focus on kind of the future. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit, but uh, are there any specific things, whether it be um, new kind of methodologies, new technologies, uh, new approaches that really excites you about the uh, the next 10 years or so in your field? Yeah, I think, I definitely think so. I mean, you can see on the software side, I think there's going to, and the algorithm side, there's going to continue to be developments. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just look at the new 
chat, you know, chat GPT yeah. and, yeah. and these types of technology that it's kind of taken the world by storm. Um, and it seems like every few years, this is some new breakthroughs. And these are, these are like the big breakthroughs that make it to the popular sphere, but right. within the, the realm of artificial intelligence research and related fields, um, there are just, there are often new models that people design that are actually really relevant to brain computer interfaces. Mm-hmm. And so we're pretty, you know, I consider it's a good, it, it's very fortunate that we have this wealth of research and active development that's going on in artificial intelligence that oftentimes, yeah, has really a lot of relevance to to what we are trying to achieve with with our technology. And so in that realm, you know, I'm very optimistic. Um, I think that, again, there are companies now, there's a lot of investments now in trying to make something that out, is out of the research realm and into patients' lives who need them. And I think mm-hmm. that that is very promising. Um, there's a lot of, of course, ethical considerations that have to get worked through. Um, there have been, I think a good example of this, of some one kind of potential issue I'm talking about is mm-hmm. there was a company that had retinal implants to try to restore vision. And um, basically the company went you know, they went bankrupt and they ceased operation and people who had the implants were left, you know, in a kind of a, a really weird situation where hmm. even though they felt very optimistic about the technology, all of a sudden there was no one left to support it and to yeah. continue working on it. And so I think this is just one example. I mean, there's all kinds of like data privacy, like mm-hmm. brain right. data privacy issues, but anyways, I, I think that it's important to think about these things, but overall I am optimistic that and excited by the fact that there's more interest in the field, not just in the research sphere, but in industry, because that's really what it's going to take, you know, to, to help people, you know, people in both research and industry need to engage with the people that they want to help to make sure that what's being designed is appropriate for them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, overall, I think that these are, you know, nothing is going to be easy, but there's a clear road towards, you know, taking this to where it needs to go. And I think I'm very optimistic about that. Uh, that's, uh, that's really great to hear. A very, very kind of positive outlook for the future of this uh, really fascinating industry. Um, may, maybe another question here regarding to the, to the future of this technology. So, you know, we've, we've talked about um, restoring communication, restoring sight, uh, you know, there's. I know that there's many other companies out there that are trying to, you know, deal with or kind of treat depression or other kind of, you know, uh, anxiety issues uh, within within the therapeutical or you know the healthcare kind of system. Um, maybe some of the more fantastical ideas out there are, you know, connecting your brain to say machines, uh, your cell phone, for instance, being able to think and send a text. Uh, is that anywhere in uh, the near future? Is this still something that you see is far away? Um, because of the, I mean, the ethical considerations would be massive, but also the technological considerations are maybe there needs to be another kind of breakthrough for that to happen too. Yeah, I think that it's not like if you're asking me if I think it's possible in the next 10 years, I definitely do. I think it is possible in the next 10 years. Um, and I think if you, if you imagine even the, the things that we're working on, like we decoded text as someone was trying to speak. Yeah. And that just got displayed as text on a screen, but 
going from that to a phone or a computer for them to control, you know, it, I'm not going to say it's trivial, but it's, it's straightforward. Yeah. That, that can be solved. Um, all the pieces are there to solve that. So I think that at least for people who could really benefit from the technology, I am optimistic. And I think in the next 10 years, they will have brain computer face, uh, brain computer interface options. Hmm. Now for just a regular consumer like me or you, do I want to, you know, augment the rate at which I can use my phone or my computer? I'm going to get a brain computer interface. I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, I think that's, that's probably a long ways out. And, uh, but you know, to me, I'm not, I think that's okay. And that's pretty reasonable. So it's yeah yeah it's it's, it's, it's always okay, interesting yeah. I've, I've, I've had a number of uh debates or even mild discussions with uh, with some of my friends about this and you know the concerns um but then also kind of the the enormous benefits that would come with um with this specifically for the consumers but i i think you're right the um the benefits for those people that actually need it far outweigh the kind of you know potential risks if i can even use that word for the uh, for the consumer base uh in the next 10 years or so so uh, really interesting to hear yeah, uh, no, yeah. that's exactly, I think that's exactly uh, the same viewpoint that I share. Yeah. So, you know, the first step is, is to help the people who need it with this technology who can be yeah. uniquely helped with the technology. I think that is really, really important. Um, and then, yeah, if there is an opportunity for, yeah, as technology improves and as all these approaches, the hardware, the software improves, yeah, maybe in the I guess more distant future, you could yeah. imagine a, a general purpose, um, just a general purpose interface with technology that's done straight from your mind. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's pretty, you know, like it's science fiction, sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I, I'm usually don't focus on those types of applications because I, you know, where my focus is yeah. is on yeah. something more with a clinical application. But yeah. um, I would say, yeah, it's possible. Fascinating. Uh, well, I also see that the uh, the time's about uh, up here, David. Um, thank you very much for coming on. Um, where can people follow you, uh, get in touch with you, see what kind of work that you're coming uh, out with uh, and the type of work that you're working on? So in terms of where people can reach me, um, I have a Twitter that I check occasionally. I'm not on it that often, but it's um, at and then at David Moses. But you just follow the research from you know the edward chang lab at ucsf and just keep an eye out for any publications or any um anything in the the media for that but we'll try to we try to promote that using uh any big outcomes using our kind of twitter presence so that's a good way to to keep in the loop perfect Perfect. Great. Well, I'll have that up in the, in the show notes. So if there's anybody that's interested, uh, they can get in touch. So thanks a lot, David, for coming on. Uh, it was a pleasure. And um, I hope hopefully have you back uh, on in the future at some point. Thanks. So thanks for listening to this week's Future Tech and Foresight podcast. If you like what you've heard, here are a number of ways that you can go out and support the podcast. The best way would be to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or even give a rating on Spotify, which you can find a step-by-step -step explanation for on the futuretechandforesight.com website. Alternatively, feel free to leave a comment either on the episode show notes on the website 
or the YouTube channel where you can also see video recordings of each of the interviews. And finally, if you are part of an organization that is aware of the disruptive and transformational impact that emerging and future technologies will bring and want to know more, you can get in touch with me to hear about the strategic foresight services I offer and how I can help future-proof your organization and take advantage of the phenomenal opportunities available to survive and thrive in the future. A lot of future shock people and future shock institutions in our society are simply overwhelmed. Once there is superintelligence, the fate of humanity may depend on what the superintelligence does. Science fact is catching up to science fiction. The first truly intelligent machine will be the last invention that humanity needs to make. The only scarcity that will exist in the future is that which we decide to create ourselves as humans. Within a 10-year design revolution, we can have all humanity living the highest and living anybody's ever known. Progress is uh, accelerating at an exponential pace and it's going to reach a point where progress is so fast it's going to be a singularity. We are probably one of the last generations of homo sapiens. Every single headline points to the birth pangs of a type 1 civilization.